You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning methods for generating and reasoning with natural language. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Talia Ringer, who's an assistant professor with the Programming Languages, Formal Methods, and Software Engineering Group at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Her research centers around making it possible for programmers of all skill levels across all domains to be able to prove the absence of costly or dangerous bugs in software systems, known as formal verification. To do so, her work centers on proof engineering technologies, which includes research ranging from dependent type theory to program transformations to neural proof synthesis. Talia's PhD thesis is titled Proof Repair, which she completed in 2021 at the University of Washington. Talia's thesis is in the area of formal verification, which involves proving that a program satisfies a formal specification of its behavior in order to bring strong guarantees to large and critical systems. Just as software changes over time and requires maintenance, the proofs that verify software also change over time and require maintenance. For instance, let's say we have a function and a proof that it returns the correct answer given two arguments. But now someone changes the function by swapping its arguments, breaking the proof. What we want to do is automatically repair the proof so that it works with the new change. This idea, called proof repair, is what Talia pioneers in her thesis work. We discuss the backstory of proof repair, along with the approaches she developed based on semantic differencing and program transformations, and talk about the increasing prevalence of machine learning in her area of research. We discuss the trade-off between generalization and flexibility in symbolic versus neural systems, and the role of theory, in this case, deep ideas from category theory, in her research. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. To support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash thesis review or make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Talia Ringer with Proof Repair on the Thesis Review. Before you plan to do a PhD, what was your background, your academic background, And how did you start to get interested in doing a PhD? Yeah, that's interesting. So let's see. I guess I was in college, like I started off as a math major. Um, So I actually never, I never wrote any programs until uh, college. (laughs) Um, Or I think maybe I did Lego robotics once, but no one told me I was programming. They just said (laughs) that I was making robots. Um, So, you know, I took a programming class a computer science class as like a almost like a broader uh like you know like a requirement kind of thing 
Um, and then I, I kind of slowly, slowly got hooked. I was really interested at first, but I really struggled early on, um, with computer science. And then, uh, um, I went to like the Google computer science summer Institute for a couple of weeks and like, they were really like, like people believed in me and it was really fun. Um, so then I came back and I tried to minor in computer science and the advisor told me you should just major if you're going to minor. <laughs> um, so then I was a double major and then I got really into like theory and stuff like that. So I was into, uh, um, first for a while, like complexity theory, I was very obsessed with and, uh, cryptology. Like I did, uh, crypto research in undergrad. Yeah. And then when I graduated, I, um, so I took a programming languages class at the end of my under undergrad, but I didn't like, um, I think I, I really liked it like a lot. Um, but I didn't kind of realize how much I liked it, <laughs> mm. um, at the time. And then I, you know, for a few years, I actually went off. I was a software engineer at Amazon. I kind of knew I was going to go back to grad school eventually, but I didn't like, I just wanted a break. I wanted some time to think about it, make sure that I was going into things like well rested and that I really knew what I wanted. Um, mm. and by the time I applied, um, I realized like when I spoke to people about, you know, classes and undergrad and stuff, I would always get really excited about the programming languages stuff. And it felt really applicable to like my daily job. So yeah, I, I just moved into that and it was, it was fun. In that course, was that, did it have like the functional programming and was that your first exposure to that or? Yeah, there was like an intro. So I was at University of Maryland for undergrad. Um, mm -hmm. There was a like intro programming languages course, but then the real thing that got me was like a modern compilers course. So like design and implementation of programming languages. Um, because I think until then it hadn't occurred to me that like a compiler is also kind of just a program. And like, if you want to write like a programming language, you can just do that. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I don't know, it was just mind blowing. Like I always thought of programming languages as these things that just already existed. But the idea that you could just like program one of them, just like you could program anything else is, is really cool. <laughs> yeah, that is cool. And then like, so I, I guess like towards the end of undergrad is when you started doing this course. Is there anything like to kind of like extract from that experience? Like, would you go back and do something different or yeah, in terms of like, I don't know, this is how I, I actually was with machine learning is like, I found out about machine learning, like junior or senior year, and then I was hooked. And then, <laughs> and then like other people like already doing research as like a, a freshman, you know, on machine learning. But at the same time, like, that's just how it was for me. And I, I don't even know if I'd go back and change anything. Yeah. Yeah, I think from my experiences, like I wouldn't change anything because I, I think actually like starting off in math and getting that like really good math background first um, and then moving into engineering and getting like this really hands-on like tool building experience. Like these things are both incredibly useful for programming languages work where you, you really need both. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, by the time I went to my PhD, I felt like these these came together really beautifully. Um, now I do think like, I think things have changed since the time that I applied for grad school and it's not as bad in programming languages as it is in like machine learning. <laughs> um, but I do think every year it's like, there are more people and we don't scale up, um, 
faculty as quickly as we scale up people who are interested in, in like grad school. And I think sometimes it gets harder and harder. Um, so I could see, you know, motivation for like, you know, wanting to do research in exactly what you want like earlier. But I, I think, I think a lot of, I don't know, I think that speaks more to the admissions process being messed up than it does to anything else. Um, and I, I don't think it's the most important thing to look for in a, in a candidate. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, it is, it is complex. So you said you were working at Amazon, was it? Yeah. Yeah. So then like, how did you decide to, that you wanted to go to like this research level in terms of this interest in like programming languages versus just like, you know, exploring it through industry? Yeah, I mean, I, I really, I think I always kind of knew there was just a large part of me that like wanted to be a professor and there's like one way to do it. <laughs> um, so it's kind of the biggest, the biggest motivation for going to grad school. Um, but definitely not the only one. Um, I think I really like things, things I really like about academic research that drew me back there. Um, for one, there's the freedom, like, uh, I really like the model of like, I pick the thing that I find the most interesting and then I convince someone that they should let me do it and pay me. <laughs> like, I think it's much better than like someone pays me and tells me what to do. Um, mm. And uh, and I really like having students. I think that that's the most exciting part. Like I just really wanted to work with students. There's something very unique about the like advising process um, that I just don't think there's a good parallel of in industry um like you can manage an industry but it's a little different uh here you're very focused on like developing someone to be an independent researcher so they don't need you anymore and they go off somewhere else without you <laughs> mm -hmm. and it's it yeah. feels very like it's it's just nice i don't know yeah, yeah yeah i forgot if it was on one of these episodes or just someone else talking with but they said something once which <laughs> stuck with me which was like some people talk about like impact in terms of like working on a product which reaches, you know, millions of people. But like, you could also think of impact as being like, as a professor, you're developing a student. And so your impact is like forming a student who then goes on to have their own impact. Yeah, that always stuck yeah. with me. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's what gets me really, really excited because it's like, yeah, my own research, I can only do so much as as one person. But like, every student that you give the background and like the opportunities to succeed and you like help them, you know, develop, then they go off and they do things that you could never do. <laughs> and that's like, that's <laughs> wild. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm very excited for that. Let's go back to the PhD. So like as you're getting started and then if we look at the PhD thesis now, so your thesis is on this idea of proofs and proof repair. When in the PhD process did you start to get interested in um, this like general area of like proofs and proofs assistance? Yeah, so I'd say I started to get interested in it my first year. It wasn't what I did research in immediately. Um, I did a couple other projects in programming languages first that were in kind of different areas. Um, but I did take a class on proof assistance and I think as a math major, I'd always been like curious about them. Like I'd heard about them in undergrad, but I hadn't really spent much time on them. Um, but yeah, I, I took a class, like a grad programming languages class. It was all in proof assistance. Um, if you're at UW, it's like 505 with uh, 
that's Zach Tatlock. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, he's great. But uh, it's like, um, I think that I'm very, for better or for worse, like frustration driven sometimes. Um, so if I try out something and I find it hard, um, I often get obsessed with like how to make it easier <laughs> or better. Mm. And I think a lot of programming languages people are like this, which is why when you talk to us, like it sounds like we hate all programming languages. <laughs> so like, why are we in this field? But it's like, it's, it's just this like compulsive drive. It's like, no, we can do better than this. Um, yeah. And I felt like that to some degree. It was like these like proof assistants, they're beautiful. They're fascinating. They're like so promising, so much power. But then like, uh, using them is just too hard <laughs> and mm. a lot of people kind of felt like this is like a fundamental like it just should be hard and I just don't think it's true I think it's like we just have like a lot of work to do to make it easier and I, I got really obsessed with doing that work <laughs> yeah maybe that's like how researchers are because I find myself <laughs> uh, listing off all the downsides of like language models and things like that but then sometimes I have to take a step back and say like wow like actually they are useful for, for a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, so maybe like for those who aren't familiar, um, what is a proof assistant and what do you do with a proof assistant? A uh, proof assistant is, let's see, how do I explain it? So it's an interactive tool for writing machine checkable proofs. Um, so those proofs can be about mathematics or they can actually be about programs that you could you know, even execute. Uh, so, you know, I usually focus on program verification because I think it's one of the coolest things about a machine checkable proof. So there it's like, what you would do is you would write your program inside of the proof assistant. Um, but then you would also specify something that you want to be true about your program. And then you write a proof that actually shows your program satisfies your specification. Uh, so like it, it, you know, it does what you said it does. Um, and the proof assistant can check this proof. Uh, and let you know, you know, that your proof is correct. So your program actually has that behavior, um, mm-hmm. if it is true. <laughs> Otherwise, you have to fix the program um, or the thing you specified. But uh, yeah, and that that process of writing the proof is usually done like very interactively, which is why they call these proof assistants or interactive theorem provers. Um, so typically, instead of like, like there's like a low level like kind of code that you could write the proof in, which is the thing that the proof assistant checks for you. Um, but it's like super hard to write proofs that way. It'd be like writing this giant, like super wild function um, inside of this language. But instead you uh, you kind of get help from the proof assistant in doing this. Uh, so you'll like, you'll pass in these like, uh, these strategies called tactics uh, that might be something like induction or like, you know, apply this lemma or do some rewriting. Um, and then the proof assistant will respond by like refining your goal in some way, uh, like, you know, prove the base case and kind of that like back and forth process continues until, you know, until the proof assistant and, and you together have found this proof that the proof assistant can check. Yeah. So then like, so you mentioned like the mathematics, like having a, you know, like a formal proof in math. On this, in terms of the software verification side, like what types of software actually goes through this verification process and like how much like kind of like impact do you see this having? Yeah. So I think so far it's been most impactful in areas where 
for one, you have a clear specification of program behavior that you really want it to meet. Uh, so really common specifications are things like security properties, um, uh, you know, confidentiality, integrity, those sorts of things. Um, uh, things like, uh, you know, compiler correctness, uh, or you can just say, like, I, I want anything that was true about my source language to still be true after compiling, and I don't want any new things to be true, those sorts of things. Yeah, so, so really, like, um, I think a lot, of, a lot of system software, especially, um, where there's, like, a, a clear, you know, pro property that can be specified and proven, um, we've started to see a good amount of stuff, um, mostly by Adam Chapala at MIT, also on like hardware verification, um, which is really cool. Um, and yeah, I think, so yeah, like the clear properties um, and, and often in, in spaces where having those properties be true is like relatively high stakes, uh, mm. you know, like things could go could go wrong. <laughs> um, right, yeah. Yeah, so um, definitely security security critical applications are frequent. But I think like as as it becomes easier, I expect you know people will be able to use it for less less critical applications as well. Um, and mm -hmm. just get stronger guarantees and like, you know, maybe be paged less often. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um yeah, I think one of the harder things is in areas where the specification is is like much more difficult, like, you know, when you're not exactly sure what your program should be doing or how to yeah. specify it. Um, that's probably, yeah, one area where it will take much longer. Yeah, that is interesting. So, yeah, there's, there's certainly, I guess, like some applications where what you want to be true is what is in the spe specification and you know kind of what the specification is. But then, yeah, it seems like in some in some cases, you might not even know what to specify in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is one area where, like, I think there is actually, there could be really promising research here and it's just not something that people have spent that much time on. Mm. Like, I think helping people understand what their programs are doing um, and from that, find out, you know, things it might be doing that they don't want it to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then from there, like, you know, derive a specification of like what they might actually want. Like that could be an interactive process too. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that would be, yeah, like that, that, that would be really, really useful. I think there's a lot of potential there. Yeah. Yeah, that is cool. Starting to move towards the, the topic of your thesis. So I guess like a, at some point you got interested in these proofs, like you'd mentioned, and I guess you could think about some system which automatically comes up with the proof for you. Your thesis takes a kind of different angle in the sense that it's like about how proofs evolve over time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like when uh, when the program you're proving something about changes or the thing you want to prove changes, yeah. like how does the proof evolve? So how did you like start to get interested in this aspect? Uh, was it like you were working on these proofs a lot and started thinking like this is the kind of like key area I want to focus on or? I think it was mostly conversations with other researchers at, at UW during grad school. Um, so I think Zach Tatlock had mentioned um, how, you know, yes, you've proven everything, but then you make a change, it all breaks. 
Um, it also, in this like famous critique of program verification in like the 1970s by some Turing Award winner <laughs> and his friends, um, was like one of the big things that they brought up that like, uh, you know, sure, what is it, like a sufficiently fanatical researcher might be willing to spend, you know, two or three years verifying a significant piece of software if the software could remain stable. Um, you know, but like <laughs> the software is always changing. I forget exactly what the wording was. Um, uh, and, you know, the, this is like, what did they say? They were like, there's no reason to believe that like verifying a modified program should be any easier than verifying the original the first time around. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that line kind of bothered me. <laughs> uh, and again, like frustration driven research, like um, it bothered me in a way that it was like, I feel like it, that that should be true. Like it, it should be easier to verify a modified piece of software. If the modification is reasonable, um, I would expect the change in the proof to be kind of analogous. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't, I think the general problem of like an arbitrary change uh, and, you know, an arbitrary fix to your proof, like this is extremely, extremely undecidable. Um, but then I think when you start looking at practical changes that people are actually making, um, it's just like often true. And I, I felt that was almost certainly true. So then, so then with my advisor, we started to look at like, uh, my advisor was Dan Grossman. Basically proofs, like differencing the diffs between proofs um, when people would make small changes, like really, really minimal changes and just see if there was like something in that proof that kind of reflected the change that was being made, something that automation could maybe figure out or generalize. Um, and like, uh, yeah, I still remember the proof where we found where we found that for the first time, like that, that, mm -hmm. that is there, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So then like an example would be what, so someone changes the order of the arguments or something, and then that ends up breaking the proof of that program. Yeah. It can be order of arguments or cases. It can be, um, it can be like, Oh, just a slight change. Like I think, you know, at one point we had like going from less than or equal to to like less than somewhere or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, where you have something that is true and like it, it's like it's not they're not like equivalent, but they're like almost um almost the same. Uh it could be adding some new information, like you have some data type and now you slightly modify that data type to track like more information um alongside it and then uh, you know, all the proofs have to change to track that information now, um, but they'll do so in kind of predictable ways. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> I see. And then like, yeah, one thing I was curious about is, um, so I don't know, like in, in machine learning, we kind of have like different, there, there's many different ways to divide up the field. But like, if you look at one field, like, I don't know, NLP, then there might be kind of like familiar tasks that people work on like translation or dialogue or general core methods. Um, is there some analogy here where like people typically work on these like proof assistants and then kind of the angle that you were taking with this proof repair was like a completely new thing or had like people been thinking about the proof repair? Like I, I just wanted to get some, some sense of that. 
Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't think people I mean, I think I think the idea came up very occasionally like like no no good ideas I think are things that like one person has ever at like one time. Usually when there's a good idea, there's like a bunch of people who have it kind of independently. So I do know people who have told me like, "Oh, I also thought about doing proof repair <laughs> at some point." And like my you know, my friend Val I think was working on a like a, a similar paper around the time that I published the first like proof repair paper. So I wouldn't say it was like, you know, like totally new, but it, like, it, it wasn't like an active field. Like I definitely defined the, you know, the thesis is just proof repair. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah. it's super wild to see people using those words as like a real thing now. <laughs> um, <laughs> like a call for hiring at like Amazon was like, this was really funny. It was like two years of expertise in roof repair, but my thesis was last year. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know where they're finding those people. But yeah, um, I think, but oh, it was really, funny. yeah, it is, it is influenced by, uh, by program repair. I think it's important to say like, uh, there's a very active and old field of automatically like fixing your programs in response to breaking changes. Um, and the, the way that people do this is, is pretty different uh, from the proof repair work, but mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, like it was kind of, even the name I kept the same because there's, there's, this, there's this deep relationship between programs and proofs. It's called Curry-Howard, <laughs> um, where you can think of like programs as being proofs and proofs as being programs in some sense. Uh, and so, you know, the idea there is like, if you have program repair, then like in some sense, you know, if you think of proofs as programs, you can fix them. <laughs> um, so you have proof repair. And and I just kind of, th that definitely factored into, I think, a lot of the, the program repair work, um, uh -huh. or at least the ideas that they had. Yeah. 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 I remember I took a course with Steve Sedanswick. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I obviously, I, I didn't become a programming languages researcher, but what you're saying about like it kind of like this course like really like giving you some like deep sense of like this is awesome i remember thinking the same thing in that course like he went over this curry howard isomorphism and i was like wow that is crazy <laughs> and then uh yeah we were also using these like proof assistants and you realize that like everything is kind of a program yeah. the programming language itself the thing that you're using to prove things about the programming language and yeah yeah in my sense i even write programs that will like like take in proofs which are in some sense programs and like transform them to other proofs mm -hmm. <laughs> about your programs and it's it's wild it gets so like yeah i learned about curry howard for the first time i think in undergrad uh senior year of undergrad in that programming languages class and I think it was one of the most mind-blowing things I ever learned because I'd separately learned about uh, about proofs as like a math major, and then I'd separately learned about programming languages as uh, you know a computer science major. And for someone to tell me that like I can link these two things together was just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's just, just so mind-blowing because then you have this ability to transfer knowledge like like between both areas just freely. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask about this, like the difference between a proof and just like a program in general, I guess in practice. So like, I guess what I really have in mind is if we had some, you know, like machine learning system and it knew how to generate, synthesize these proofs versus something which synthesized 
like programs that people use on a daily basis. Are they kind of two different, completely different things? Or if we kind of get better at one, we'll probably get better at the other one. Yeah, that's interesting. I think there are ways in which they're the same and there are ways in which they're different. Um, so I guess, first of all, like if you, you can, there is a sense in which you can think about programs as, as being proofs. But if you take a program in like C or something like that, <laughs> um, the the type system that you have like means that the proofs you get are just not interesting for a couple of reasons. Like, first of all, you just can't express, you can't like quantify over things in your type system. So you end up with things like, you know, like int implies int, <laughs> which is like not, not an interesting proof. It is a proof, but it's not an interesting one. Um, mm -hmm. And then like, uh, you can also, um, also if the type system is not sound, then like you could check your proof, but it just means you're in a logical system where you might, where you know, you might be able to prove false. <laughs> um, so, so there's a sense in which, like, I think a lot of existing programming languages are weak enough in some way that they don't, uh, they give you proofs that are just not interesting proofs. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think when you have these proof assistants, you have a language with a very, very rich and expressive type system where you can do things like quantify over all your inputs and specify, you know, how your outputs are related in particular ways, like all as a type. Um, mm -hmm. And you have really good like soundness guarantees. So, you know, when you check it, things are correct. Um, so the difficulties that come up with automation um, are, are there are different challenges, I think. Um, if you're doing like program synthesis, um, even, you know, whether it's machine learning or like classical program synthesis, I think one of the frequent questions that comes up is like, how do you know when you're correct? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And program repair as well. Uh, and, you know, like if you have a specification, it's much easier. Um, but a lot of times you don't really have a good specification. You might have a bunch of test cases. Your test cases are probably wildly underspecified. <laughs> um, and like in, in practice, in the program repair world and uh, also now in the machine learning world, like you end up overfitting to your test cases as well. And like you just, uh, some, some of these tools will just kind of, you know, you do really well in the test suite, but they don't actually like uh, work. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, I mean, they could work. I think it's just, there's, it's just not a good, uh, just running on a bunch of test cases, I think, has, has been shown to not be a very meaningful measure of, of success, um, even though it's one that you could do with a program synthesis model. Um, mm -hmm. But there are ways around this. There are lots of, like, you can have a human vet, you know, the, the output. You can um, have equivalences between, like, something you know you, you should have, a program that, that it sh you should, you know, like a, a reference program. Um, so, so there are ways around that there. In the proof assistant world, it's like uh, that that problem is much less of a problem. Um, <laughs> like if you write, if you produce a proof, like you have, um, you know, you have these specifications everywhere. You've, you've proven it. You're good. Um, although there is like the additional problem of like a human should still vet the specification and make sure that it specifies something reasonable, um, especially if a tool is changing specifications. Mm -hmm. um, Another, but a challenge that comes up as a trade-off is that um, 
the tool is much pickier about <laughs> what it means for something to be correct. And there isn't, there isn't a spectrum of like, if you give us something like, I don't really know a good notion of what it means for something to be like almost correct in the proof assistant world. I think there mm -hmm. could be some notion of this, but um, it's really hard to, to define. Um, and anything that is like almost correct is just not even going to type check. <laughs> um, like, yeah, the, it's so brittle and finicky and like uh, um, it just you have to get a lot right to get things right. You can't just kind of be almost there. Yeah. 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 That's really interesting. So it, it kind of seems to relate to if we like talk about the math again, um, like the proof assistant type of math versus like the math that you write as a human, it's like going to be a bit more fuzzy, even though we think of it as like being really precise, what we do as humans it's going to be like less exact as the, the proof system math. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Yeah, I think I think a lot of times, actually, when people move from the handwritten proofs to formal proofs, they find out that their handwritten proofs had like slight mistakes in them. <laughs> um, and, and they weren't like, it wasn't like the thing isn't true. It's just like there's something that they glazed over and they were missing the core insight, but like in a way that didn't matter that much in real life. But, you know, <laughs> um, I think like, yeah, it's everything you just, you can't cheat with a proof assistant. Mm -hmm. You can't like, uh, you have to, the all the way down to like what it means for two things to be equal. It's something that the proof assistant has to understand yeah. um, and be able to compute in some sense. And that's like things that, that people take so much for granted in, in real life. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I do find that like like in my spare time I'll do these like proofs in lean. And I feel like it makes you think it makes you think a lot. And like if you can prove something in lean, it's like almost easier. Like you've already thought about it enough that you're able to like prove it in natural language. Like not necessarily the the other way around. So yeah, maybe like starting to go into some details of of what you did here then. So in this idea of, uh, you know, proofs changing over time, how did you begin to break this down? Like you separated it into this idea of like differencing and transformations? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So like the differencing and transformations framing of it, I think, came at the very, the very end, like as I was writing the thesis, um, mm. Which is kind of interesting how those things work. Like you look back and you're like, oh, there's a common structure to all of this, um, which was nice. Uh, but but it did start off by, um, I knew there would be some semantic differencing involved, um, like looking at two proofs and seeing how they change. So so the first thing that I remember doing um, is at the time my advisor gave me you know, really, really silly changes in, in proofs. Like, I think it was going from like, N is less than or equal to M as a conclusion to like, N is less than or equal to M plus one or something like that. You know, like a really, really silly change. Um, and he's like, you know, just look at these proofs, like, like see if you can find, uh, you know, a way they change that corresponds to that, like change in specification. Like, is that captured anywhere inside the proof? Um, and 
you know, sure enough is like, if you look in the right place, um, I remember looking not at the tactic level, not at these like tech, these, uh, these strategies that people write, but at the, the terms that they actually produce, like these programs. Um, I remember looking in like one of the cases and I was like, if you abstract, you know, this thing and you like kind of make a function from this to this, <laughs> then you get an implication from like the new thing back to the old thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so there was like a, the, the, like the difference between them, you know, captured the change. Um, and there were a whole bunch of other kind of changes, but the other changes were not like like those other changes were necessitated by the change in the specification and they weren't like interesting. Um, mm -hmm. They were, they were just like structurally like expected, but there's this one like beautiful uh, like lemma that shows up in the difference um, that really captures like the essence of the change. Um, mm -hmm. So I was really excited about that and <laughs> just kind of went wild with it at first as looking at like, okay, you know, if I discover one of these changes, how can I use it inside of other proofs, like broken by those change, by the same change? Um, so that's what kind of started off that work. Um, and then, yeah, from there going into like changes in data types and how I could kind of discover similar changes and, and use those to port proofs. But yeah, it seems like seemed to me like yeah, every change just like if you know where to look, you can see things changing in a way that like you can see the proof changing in a way that corresponds to the change in the program or the specification. Um and so that's the differencing part. And then mm -hmm. like the transformation part is like, well, now how do you use that? to fix, you know, the other proofs broken by that change. Yeah. So on that note, like, it seems like you were like really looking at, it was almost like maybe like bottom up, like you were looking at these like proof terms and seeing differences between them and thinking like, okay, maybe this will be useful for what I have in mind. I guess what I'm getting at is like, if you read the thesis, it has this top down view of things in terms of like this command so you have like this patch proof command like yeah. old proof and new proof so did that kind of come later or did you always have this like command that you wanted in mind as you were thinking of this i think i kind of came at it from two directions at once it was like i want mm -hmm. some kind of automation that i could call that was going to you know fix my proofs for me Maybe it would ask me for some additional information, but yeah, it would, you know, I, I could just call it, it would figure out how to change things, it would change things. Um, and then it was like, um, in order to do that, I need to discover like how, how those changes actually manifest. Like what information is it that already exists so that we don't have to ask the human for like, you know, more information than, than they actually need to supply. Like how much can we get for free basically? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You wrote out these kind of steps. So, so like one step is extracting into some candidate, I guess that would be like the differencing. And the other is like generalizing what you found into a patch. So 
could you just talk through what that means? Like as a machine learning person, when I hear generalized, I'm like, wow, how do you do that off of like one example? But yeah, maybe just like uh, explaining kind of what's going on, like in yeah. the solution that you came up with. Yeah, it's actually really funny. I, I initially called it abstract instead of generalize. Um, mm -hmm. And then I was talking to someone and they were like, if you view this as symbolic learning, then this is literally generalization. And I was like, huh. <laughs> so I thought about it. And like, I, I guess the way that generalization and machine learning and generalization in the symbolic world collide is imagine that you're test suite um, or your distribution, whatever, is it's infinite. It's all the inputs that you could ever have. <laughs> and you know what those are, <laughs> you know exactly what they are. Um, and you're not trying to minimize like how far, you know, the behavior diverges from what you want. You're trying to actually just like literally always, always succeed. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so there's like at the limit, it actually becomes the like symbolic generalization, which is interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. It's because we're in this, I think, I think this is one thing that's really nice about this, like in particular, this logical system that, that we're in these, this type system for these proofs, it's a constructive logic, which means that if you're going to prove that something exists, you can't prove that it like doesn't not exist. <laughs> um, I know, like, or you can prove that, but it doesn't mean the same thing by default. Um, you really, you have to like supply a witness. You have to, sh you have to supply an example, um, mm -hmm. and and inside of those examples, you have these you have these things that you can manipulate. Like you just, they're so rich. It's like you might have, um, you're trying to show that like for all n p of n <laughs> this is like the the general thing um and you might find you know p of zero somewhere <laughs> mm -hmm. um and in many cases like like because p of zero has to carry all this information around you could actually go in and like and do some kind of substitution like what if i took zero and i abstracted it and i pulled it out into like any n you know could i get a proof of for all n p of n <laughs> um mm -hmm. and and like like fairly often you can do that in general it's very undecidable but in practice like the information is just like like frequently just right there mm -hmm. waiting for you <laughs> um yeah yeah it's a yeah and then so then if you're able to do that uh like a, a substitution are you saying that some substitutions will lead to a correct proof and then the system gives you some feedback signal in the sense that like it's now correct yeah yeah that's another nice thing that we have is we have an oracle like the the type checker um and mm -hmm. having that oracle just gives you this extra power of like um yeah yeah so if you go in and you sub you do some substitutions in your function that had type p of zero um then you can go and you can check what you get and you can be like, does this have type for all n p of n? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And if it does, you're good. And if it doesn't, um, then you'll get a really cryptic error that's not very useful yet. <laughs> but <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. I see. So then like, what's the, um, like the symbolic generalization is perfect generalization. Like you said, you can like converge to it. So then kind of like, what's the catch? So <laughs> is it, I guess that, here you have to say 
I guess it's like flexibility, maybe like it only covers a certain type of change. Yeah, it, that I think that's a really frequent thing. It's like at least for for the repair case, um, you know, the, here my P is like the relation between my old and new version of something. Um, if I'm saying like P of zero and for all n P of n, um, mm. and yeah, like discovering the thing that you want to try to generalize, um, mm. it's depending on the kind of change that you have and like how many things have changed at once. Um, it's really like it takes a lot of specialized knowledge, I think, to write the kind of procedures to like look at the difference between the old and the new thing, find the thing that has changed, uh, you know, do the substitutions to actually generalize it, pull it out. Um, mm. So, um, you know, we have some very, very broad classes of changes for which we can do that sort of thing, which is really cool. Um, but I still have... I don't think ever convinced anyone else to to write. I mean, I guess like my grad students now, but like, you know, to handle a, a broader class. Um, yeah. So it's, it's uh, just the difficulty of implementing those sorts of things. Yeah. Other catches, um, it's just like, just undecidability in general. I mean, it's in all programming languages things, but like um, the problem of finding that, P and abstracting it to for all n p of n reduces to like higher order unification, which is an undecidable problem. Um, mm. I think I like undecidable problems; they don't worry me too much. But like, it does mean that you're you're either in a world of um, what machine learning people often call heuristics. I don't think it's a fair word. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I think you're either in a world of approximate solutions to the full problem or full solutions to approximate problems mm -hmm. yeah that is really really interesting so like in this setting like is there a role for machine learning in this setting could it help with differencing or with transformations or would it play a role in some something completely different yeah i think i don't know exactly where they're going to collide um mm -hmm. But I've been looking a little bit at like what machine learning could do for proof repair and actually starting at a very different place, um, starting at these like human written proofs where you have the, uh, you're not looking at the objects that they compile down to, which are, that's a great place for programming languages tools to work because they're super structured, um, but they're not at all natural. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's like, look instead, you know, at these tactics that people are writing, um, these strategies. Um, and I think in many cases, like, th there are a lot of changes that people make where you shouldn't really need a whole procedure, like, that handles a wide class of changes to suggest a repair. You should be able to just kind of, you know, make the corresponding changes at the tactic level. Um, mm. Huge benefits to that are like, uh, you wouldn't need as much expertise to write these kinds of procedures. And like, um, you also could, you'd get back something very human friendly at the end, which I think is important and like a place where the programming languages tools uh, alone will never succeed. <laughs> um, so I, I anticipate that to start off with, you know, program repair is going to be good for, or, or machine learning program repair will be really good for kind of simple changes at a very natural place. And programming languages for proof repair will be very good at really deep semantic changes 
that the machine learning tools are extremely unlikely to pick up on by themselves. Um, and over time, I would really like to see this information come together <laughs> in a useful way. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't yet know what that merger is. I'm just going to explore um, kind of in, in two different places. And then uh, I have some ideas, though. Like, yeah, there are definitely some ideas that are going to try to, to express some of this information to a machine learning tool and so on and see what it can do. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like certainly like machine learning has become part of your work. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I don't know what I did. I didn't expect it. And then I, I think interviewing for faculty jobs really forces you to like back up a little bit. And I had been so deep in this proof world. I had no idea what was happening in the machine learning world, like at all until, uh, until I was on the job market. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about machine learning. Um, and like, I never took a class on it or anything. Um, I, you know, in the job market, like you have to talk to all these faculty. And so you're like looking at their work and I just read all these machine learning papers. And I just kind of started to see just like natural analogs to problems I was solving and get really curious about like where things would help. And like, um, uh, you know, things like, like getting back these human friendly proofs at the end and, um, I spoke to people at Caltech about it and then at UMass Amherst, and like a collaboration popped up out of this with some people at UMass. Um, and I started, yeah, I started doing some of that, just like machine learning for like proof synthesis. And then especially for um, this problem of like, I've done something at this low level, like proof term, like a, I've transformed this proof term. How do I get back uh, this mm. high level proof script that like, you know, matches what the human might want. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I see. yeah. So it started off there and like, uh, it's, it's kind of, I think I've done a little bit more, uh, I don't know. I think, <laughs> I think as I've seen some of the results come out of industry and stuff in the space, um, from Google or from OpenAI. um, I've been thinking about like how likely I think it is that machine learning will be really useful for proof automation. Um, and I think right now I'm at like the like 40%, <laughs> like, like I think it will be extremely useful, uh, which I'm always calibrating and like revisiting and stuff. And, um, and I think actually my breakdown of projects is also roughly like 40% <laughs> machine learning for proof automation and, and 60% like, type theory and program transformations and stuff. So, so I'm, I'm going at it from, from multiple views. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's fun. Some, yeah. Some like early stuff is just very, very applied machine learning and like very domain expert kind of view of like, like what information can be exposed to these things. Um, mm -hmm. but next year I have some really like much more foundational, um, I guess there are a couple of things. There's like, they're much more foundational things. Like how do you get, uh, machine learning tools to pick up on things at inference time that are like equivalent to, but not the same as something that it saw at training time, <laughs> mm, yeah. um, which I think will be really useful. Um, so we have some projects on that and then, uh, um, and that that's just needed for proofs. Like it just, yeah. Um, and then uh, also like different tasks. I think like machine learning people have been really obsessed with like uh going between like natural going from natural language proofs to uh 
to formal proofs or like synthesizing proofs. But uh, um, as a domain expert, I'm like, I think a lot about the tasks that are like really hard and interesting and immediately useful. And they're actually not usually like predicting tactics and, and that kind of thing. So I'm like, um, mm. yeah, there are a number of other tasks where I really want to just kind of kick something off and get get the machine learning people to care about them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We will we will certainly welcome it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And um or yeah, what I was gonna comment on is like this idea of the um going from the lower level you said to the higher level yeah. proof that the human would read. There was something like kind of roughly in the same flavor in the thesis. So in part of it, you produce some output proof, which is, I guess, like the fixed one. And then you say that you transform it to have the same style as the original proof. Oh, well, so having having the same style is, is the goal. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but it's not it's not what it does. It, we definitely don't match style yet in the in the thesis work. I think um, what it does is go from the it goes from that low level proof to a high level proof. Um, in that same language that the human used. Um, so it's a form of decompilation. Um, if you think of going from that high level proof to the low level proof as like compilation. Um, but right, like in the, in the thesis work, it does this in like a very predefined like programming languages way. Like it's, it's, it's a compiler, it sees this term and it says, oh, it could be produced by this tactic. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so the the proof that you get back at the end, you know, even though the like you have the original proof in terms of tactics, you have the original proof term um, that that car compiles to. Now you have a transformed proof term, um, which is transformed in a really nice and predictable way. But then you get back up, <laughs> and that tr transformed like script of tactics. Um, could look nothing like the original one. Like it could be totally yeah, different. Yeah. Um, so that's like that's a place where programming languages is just not quite as useful. So there were some things we did at first. Like uh, what did we do? We had we built in the ability to stick in like hints. Uh, so you could say like you know when you're going back up, like try to use these tactics. Um, and there's a way to test it and make sure that it gets you something you know that's still correct. Um, and then and then the next thing that we did from there, which I guess it's kind of it's still in progress, but it's like this is the first place machine learning came in and like where I kind of got at all involved in machine learning was like, OK, if we're going to take hints, what if instead of taking like a list of hints at the beginning of the decompilation process, we took hints after every single tactic? <laughs> and what if those hints didn't come from the user? <laughs> what if those hints came from a model that predicted the next tactic? <laughs> Mm. Um, so we're able to use like standard like tactic prediction models, which there's a fair amount of work on, and like some ones that we're you know improving um, in the decompilation process as hints to like improve the high level proof script that we get back and make it more natural. Um, and then I think there's a whole bunch of questions like, could you use you know the original proof in some way? Um, or, you know, what if you trained it specifically on that decompilation task? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think the, the thing that made me feel like machine learning would be really useful for this kind of thing is not just that it's natural language, but I was reading a bunch of papers 
about inverse problems for my Caltech interview. And mm -hmm. it occurred to me that in some sense, decompilation is an inverse problem. Like mm -hmm. for every compiled program, you have infinitely many possible like <laughs> programs that could have compiled to that program. And you want to find the one that's like the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like the one that would have, you know, that someone would have actually written to produce that. And then like the ground truth is like round tripping on a, you know, a human written program that would have compiled down to that. So it's it seems like there there was some natural connection where I was like, oh, this yeah. seems useful. <laughs> that is really interesting. Yeah. So it's like it, you want to go from the low level to the high level with some constraint that the high level is like similar to the original human level one. And then obviously like this idea of similarity is really fuzzy. Yeah. It means yeah, like, sure. looks like something that the original person wrote. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah. why programming languages like alone, it's, it's never going to be able to, yeah, I don't know. Like just like formal things. I think that that's where they, that's where they fall through is always at the, interface with humans like like what does the human want <laughs> um is not an answer that you'll get through a, through programming languages another thing uh that came up in the thesis I, so you had this other section about like type equivalences yeah and um i have to confess like i i didn't have the the background to like really read into the details so i thought like maybe i'd ask a, a higher level question so it uses a lot of like type theory and like this homotopy type theory. Yeah. So like in general, what is the role of theory as you're doing research? Yeah, I think theory gives, oh God, it's going to sound all philosophical, but um, <laughs> I think, I think theory gives like truth shape <laughs> in some sense. Like it gives, it gives you language. It gives you, it gives you some, some way of describing these things that are true and that you need. And so like that, this is like, yeah, it, it's not usually like I go read the theory and then I think about how I can apply it. Um, <laughs> uh, usually what happens is like, I hear about the theory at some point, I'm like, that sounds cool. And then I'm diving into a problem and I'm like, these things feel related. <laughs> There's something deep here. I don't quite know what it is. It feels really beautiful. Like, what is going on? And then, you know, I get really frustrated and maybe I go for a run and then, like, I tweet about it and <laughs> I talk to some friends and I give up and then I come back several months later and then, um, you know, someone tells me that these things are related in this other way and there's, like, this epiphany and, like, um, yeah, and then suddenly I have this language to just describe this, like, feeling of... of like what's going on. Um, mm -hmm. And when I do that, usually what happens is, um, this is certainly what happened in the equivalences world. Like I had this kind of, kind of messy and ad hoc way of describing uh, what I had been doing. And it felt like <laughs> it was deeply related to homotopy type theory and that there was a nice category theory, like explanation of it that I could just draw out beautifully, but I could not find it. Like I didn't know what it was. Um, and even by the time I published that PLDI paper, I was like, um, I, I didn't quite, I didn't quite have it. Like I knew, 
I knew I'd done something really cool that corresponded to this notion in homotopy type theory. Um, and I had, you know, some evidence of this and it was useful, but I didn't quite have the, the, the language. Um, and I, I spoke to a friend at CMU, um, as a postdoc, uh, like Carlo and Julie, and <laughs> he was like, oh, um, this is like, gosh, I don't even know. It was like, this is Lambeck's theorem, <laughs> something like that. Just like the most like, like category theory thing that, that you could say. Um, and, you know, he, he like drew a bunch of things and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and it just like, it was beautiful because suddenly there's an easier way of explaining what was going on this can improve the code because like when you have an easier way of explaining something, you have an easier way of implementing it. Um, and like, you know, the, the boundary between the things that are implementation details and the things that are, you know, really the core math. And, and that, that's what I think that really helps with. Um, mm. You can communicate it, but then it also gives you like broader insights. Like, uh, you know, what we discovered was, this will be like really high level math stuff. So sorry if ahead of time, but um, we discovered is like, you know, usually like when you're applying functions, like, like in equivalence, you have, you have functions that get you back and forth and that are mutual inverses. So you always get back to the same thing. And there are like some additional properties that are true about it. Um, when you have that, you know, one way that you could get from, something over your old type to something over your new type is to just like follow these functions. Um, I'm drawing, I'm going to draw something. Um, <laughs> no, this is great. You know, so say like you're, yeah. So like, you know, if you're, if you're following your equivalences, like you're, you're literally hopping across these arrows. Um, but then the, the kind of epiphany is like, well, what if you can find like, <laughs> a functor something that gets you directly from here to here mm -hmm. where you never actually have to follow these things like you can just skip these arrows and like <laughs> yeah. the cool the cool thing about this i guess there are a cool, few cool things about this is uh, by not following all these arrows back and forth you get well first of all you can do repair to begin with like you uh um you don't have to write, if you fix a function by by hopping across these relations all the time, then you would have to rely on your old thing always. You'd have to always keep every old version of something around. But here you can just throw it out. <laughs> you just skip over that. Um, you like you get things that are more efficient uh, because you're not constantly doing these back and forth, like uh, following all these arrows around. Um, and then also like, uh, I think at a deeper level, it just means that now we've discovered a way of hunting for these transformations, um, for these repairs. Like the goal is to find some kind of relation where you could skip following that relation explicitly and just find that functor find a way to go from that old thing to that new thing and like like just skip over all that um and yeah. that that's cool because it's such a it's such a general idea so now now when we move on to we're looking at relations much more general than equivalences and it's like oh what's the functor we're looking for <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. I see. or what i said to my student uh i said what the functor <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sorry <laughs> yeah no this is that that was like one of the <laughs> 
that was one of the most like poetic greatest uh <laughs> descriptions of like why theory is is valuable so it's almost like you're as you're working on a problem it's like everything's kind of noisy and, and fuzzy if you're able to make some connection with some theory then it like gives you a language which kind of grounds everything in something concrete yeah and then you could either like relate it to other things then that, that are known you can kind of like distill what is like actually the key thing that's going on yeah yeah and you can solve future problems <laughs> yeah. you have a framework too yeah and then the um yeah the last aspect of the thesis well i mean i have a lot of questions but like one other aspect I wanted to touch on was like actually getting users to use this. So what was that like in the sense of, you know, you're you're developing these new tools and then someone has to use it. Did it kind of change the way that you thought about the method? And Yeah, yeah, I think it was really nice for motivating use cases. I mean, first of all, I'm just bad at thinking of examples. So like... Uh... It's just nice to have someone like, here are some examples I need solved. Can you do this? And that that itself can like drive like interesting research. Mm -hmm. um, but also I think one of the one of the cool things that came up like working with user was that uh, um, I think there are things I just didn't think about like how long um, someone's actually going to wait for your tool to respond <laughs> and i'm really glad like i i worked with um with my friend val at galois and i would like sit there next to him as he was using this tool and like um he would he would call it and then like he would call my command and then he would wait like 10 seconds and if it didn't respond he would just give up <laughs> And and I look at him. I'm like, why'd you give up? He's like, oh well, you know, I don't know if it's gonna keep going forever, so I just stopped. <laughs> and it was ten seconds was like his patience, and I was like, that is fascinating. Um, and so I started to put in so much effort to like efficiency and like caching and. Uh, you know, try to always make it so that it like can run in like milliseconds, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, which it's, you know, it's, it's hard, but um, yeah, that, that really drove a lot of those design decisions, I think. Yeah. yeah and then also sense. like error, error messages, how to give them useful error messages. That, that was a big thing. Mm -hmm. If, if, yeah, if I just like implemented something poorly or he passed in inputs that were not perfect or whatever. Cool. And then, so then after the PhD, well, I mean, like through the PhD, you establish this idea of, of proof repair. Um, and so now that you've finished, I mean, we've talked about some of the ideas of potentially like looking into machine learning more broadly, like what types of things are you interested in now, especially as you're starting up uh, this new lab at UI UC? Yeah, right now I have, so I'm in this like programming languages, formal methods, software engineering, like mega lab, I, I suppose. It's very big. Um, I, my particular group, which my friend like Yaoli thought of um, the name, it's uh, what, Illinois Theorem Provers, <laughs> which is ITP, <laughs> um, which is really clever. Um, and it's like, like a, a pretty solid group already. And I'm, you know, recruiting more students right now, like visit days or this weekend. Um, and like, I would say, um, all of my projects are related to 
either I guess I guess all of my projects are related to proof repair in some way at this point, but in like really interesting ways. Like they're really some of them are really branching out. Um, so I think the most direct line from my thesis work is with my student uh, Cosmo Viola, um, who's a type theorist, and like we're looking at you know what when you have like uh, you you change a data type, but you no longer have two things that are equivalent or even like could be described as an equivalence. You have this like much more general relation. Um, and, you know, we're looking at some of the cubicle type theory, like homotopy type theory literature there and seeing what we can take from it and, and you know, extend proof repair to, to handle these broader cases. Um, so, you know, that's that's one thing. And then, then we have some things like, I'm looking at like compiling, you know, what if you have a, a programming language and a proof about your about you know some code that you wrote in your language, um, and then you you want to compile your program, um, and you know what if you actually just want to compile your proof too <laughs> and get back a proof about that lower level language? Like, you know, could you just compile proofs like you compile programs across language passes? Um, and this turns out to be like something you could do with a form of proof repair. Um, mm -hmm. so we're looking at that with some students, uh, with Chris Lamb, my student, and then, um, uh, Audrey's so at UW and, uh, yeah, it was a collaboration. Um, and also with Dan, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Then there's the machine learning for proof synthesis and repair. I have like a few projects related to that right now. Um, I have too many projects. <laughs> <laughs> And then, uh, and then in a very, very like aspirational and different, different branch with uh, some friends at Eleuther AI. Do you know? Do you know Eleuther AI? Like this machine yeah, learning yeah. collective. GPT yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With them, I like um, am looking at, you know. So eventually, I want a, a, a proof data set like this, but there's just not a sample of people for this. So start, what we're doing is a, um, a large programming pair programming data set um with like or hosting event with like two or three thousand pairs of programmers um and collecting data on like atomic code atomic edits like like the changes they're making really incremental changes um mm -hmm. as well as execution data and rationales in the form of like conversations between pair programmers um mm -hmm. with the goal of like improving all these models for um, code completion or program synthesis. And then I'd like to repeat this at some point with proofs, but the data set will be much smaller. So I don't know how useful. Yeah, we'll have to see. I don't know how to bridge that gap. Yeah, <laughs> there's a yeah, lot. That sounds like uh, that was uh, enough to fill, fill up your time. <laughs> yeah, I get very excited. I mean, in general, I want like, you know, my goal is to bring, I'll also be looking, I think, at some hardware verification next year. Like I, I'm really into like, I want to I want to make verification possible for everyone, <laughs> um, and any project that I feel like is going to get me on that path, I get excited about, and I'm very, very happy to explore everything from like dependent type theory to machine learning, <laughs> and doing mm -hmm. that, just yeah, that's really cool. Like, at at what stage do you think? So this idea of like bringing verification to everyone, that's like a really it's like a vision, right? It's like a general vision. Yeah. And it could kind of like connect with, it kind of broaden things out. 
like at what point did you kind of like land on that as the thing that you really like cared about for your research yeah yeah I don't really know when that like I don't know how to explain it yeah um I think there are shorter visions that I've had like five or ten year visions um that are a part of that that were very deliberate. Like I was thinking out, like, what do I think could happen in five years? What do I think could happen in 10 years? Um, but this feeling of like, everyone should be able to verify their programs. I think this is almost like a, it's just kind of a core mission of a lot of people who do work in verification, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, I yeah. It's like, it's just this guiding principle, almost like this, this axiom about the world that like bugs are not inherent and inevitable. And, you know, if we could make this much easier, <laughs> like we would have, we could, we could really be in a world where like you actually, you know what your program is doing and you can prove it. <laughs> and like, um, that would just be really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I, I have so many other questions, but I, I guess in the name of time, we should go to the last two questions. Uh, that I always ask on the thesis review. So the first is um, about objective functions. Yeah, like if you thought back to your PhD and if you could come up with some objective function that was kind of like guiding what you were doing, whether it's like scientific curiosity or yeah, maybe it was like going towards this like larger vision or maybe it was just like getting something done every day or, or something like that. Like what was your objective function? And would you say that your objective function is different now? Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was definitely just very focused on becoming faculty <laughs> and everything mm -hmm. that I did um, throughout grad school to some degree was focused on that with some caveats, like there are things I just love where I wasn't going to give those up, even if they lessen my chance. Like I, I get really into um, like helping the community and stuff. And if that, if that took up extra time that I didn't spend on research, then so be it, <laughs> which I still feel the same way about. Like if that takes up extra time and I don't get tenure because I'm running like a ment mentoring program and, and so on, like, ah, that's, a, that's, that's their problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess, um, yeah, I was, I was very focused on becoming faculty, but I think I was actually urged really strongly to like, to focus more on, on just like, to, to just, to just kind of be myself and like um, the things that I got excited about would likely lead me into a place where I could, you know, like there, there were still some things that you, that you have to do some formulaic things. Like you need one external letter, so you should be one external letter writer, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. You need a thesis. So you should stay focused on the same problem for N years um, to some degree. Uh, but um I think beyond that, there was a lot of like, you know, if you get really into this problem, like just, there's no harm in exploring this. Like you get really excited, you will have a unique application, even if it's kind of a scary thing. And the the the, the thesis topic that I did, I think a lot of experts told me it would not, uh, um, some, someone told me that I <laughs> was not gonna get it. Like well, a re an expert in the community told me I was it wasn't gonna get a faculty job with it. I just I just went back to my advisor and like uh, was like, should I be worried about that? He's like, eh, we'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I don't know. I don't think I had a very rational, like, I don't know if I believe in rationality. <laughs> well, I mean, I the good thing my is feelings. Like, <laughs> the yeah. good thing is now there's uh, Amazon job ads that require two years of experience. So <laughs> you got the faculty position and there's that as well. So it, it did work out. <laughs> yeah. And then um, the last question that I always ask is uh, if you could come up with one piece of advice for a new researcher. And so sometimes it's the most difficult question because uh, it has to be one piece of advice. But to make it easier, um, this could, you know, either be something grand and, and broad, or it really could just be like a useful heuristic um, that you found along the way. So kind of like one piece of advice for a new researcher. Yeah. Um, I would say not to be afraid of, not to be afraid of hard problems and especially not to be afraid of being confused. Um, mm -hmm. I think that when we are undergrads and in a lot of the world around us, we're expected to always understand everything. Um, and in research, I think sometimes when problems get really interesting, like no one has any idea what's going on. Um, we are perpetually confused. The moment that we're not confused, like we finished the solving the problem, <laughs> it's no longer interesting. Um, like confusion isn't a bad thing. Finding things hard isn't isn't bad. It's just uh, it's almost a good thing. It means there's something interesting there, and like it might be frustrating to to spend a lot of time, you know, wading through this confusion and like like trying to find something that you understand. But it it's it's where, like, it's where the, the good problems are, I think. It's just, like, make, making peace with confusion, I think, is such a, a key thing, especially in, like, more theoretical research areas, like, in, in type theory. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just make peace with confusion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really good. And, like, one other one comes to mind. I think someone along the line said that if you go to pick a research problem, and you already know what the answer is, then it's not a good research problem. Yeah. I often don't even know what the question is. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, this was this was a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, thanks for taking the time to come on the thesis review. I, I really enjoyed going through your thesis. Uh, like I said, I, I do some of this stuff with like lean in, in my free time. And That's cool. it was yeah. fun to uh, hear about like a different side of this. And then to also hear about how like machine learning is starting to intersect uh, with what you're doing. So, yeah, yeah, it'll be an interesting couple of years. We'll see what happens. <laughs>